So this is Luke chapter 6, verses 17 through 27. And he came down with them and stood on the level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all of Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and be healed of their diseases. And all who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all of the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out of him and healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes to his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will, be, you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn, you, spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. And woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the, to the false prophets. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. This is God's word. Um, it, it's... In the past, I say four to five years, we have been, as a country, witnessed um, uh, to severe uh, divisions in our country: um, race, uh, gender, um, you know, income, poverty, these sort of things, and they've been exacerbated um, by falsehoods and things like that to the point where uh, uh, we have actually begun to. Uh, see somebody's political views as something that uh, basically makes them an evil person. It has been a dividing thing where we say, oh, you believe that, well, clearly you're the enemy. Or you believe that, oh, you're clearly wrong and you're terrible. We have seen this uh, uh, division growing wider and wider and wider, exposing some of the deeper, darker faults underlying our society. What's also clear to me is that politics cannot solve these things. It doesn't matter what, is, uh, what happens in Washington, D.C., more what happens at City Hall in Denver, Colorado. It is clear to me that none of these things can heal the divisions that, under, that have undergirded and have been in our society since its inception. Race, inequality, poverty, hunger, grief, persecution, Injustice. These are things that have plagued the human race since its beginning. Since the Garden of Eden and, and since then, when Cain killed Abel because he was uh, a better worshiper of God than Abel was. Or the other way around. But you, you see this spreading. And sometimes we get to see a little bit of it calms down, but nothing else is healing it. It's still there. So it's clear that human institutions are pretty inept at actually taking care of the most basic needs in healing divides in a country, in a people, in, in, uh, in a region. So Jesus comes onto the scene with this particular thing and his healing power, going out, healing diseases, healing people, doing amazing signs and wonders. And he brings this message. The one we read today is Luke's account of the Sermon on the Mount. Probably the greatest sermon ever preached. I would have loved to have been there to hear that personally. 
I would love to be able to preach that way in such a way that it was every word was so pregnant with meaning and, and wonder that you walked away just kind of feeling like, what did I just hear? It's like going into the Louvre and staring at some of the greatest paintings in the world and not having any words to actually understand what you've just seen, just that you've seen something so amazing that it goes beyond the pale of understanding. What I found interesting is that Jesus talks here exactly of the divisions that plague humanity. Hunger, poverty, grief, injustice, the haves and the have-nots, these divisions that never seem to come together, these polar opposites, these magnets that rather than attracting to one another, continually push one another apart. Jesus had spent all of this time up to this point going about the countrysides uh, in Judea uh, and, and saying this message that, Behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus' gospel message of the kingdom is now, and it's taking, beginning to take shape. He's talking about the nearness of God. He says, Behold, God has come near to you. Is a reason why they called him Emmanuel, God with us. And then he also just doesn't say, Hey, it's here. He also says, Come follow me. It's as if God himself has come down in flesh and has said to humanity, uh, not just that I'm here to rule and reign, but come, be a part of me, get close to me, get to know me, come follow. And all that followed him, the disciples, like we talked about a couple weeks ago, with the disciples leaving their nets behind and going uh, with Jesus uh, to be with him. God invites us to be with him, but he also invites us to become like him. So as we draw nearer to him, we become more like him in all of our ways, and then we get to do the things that he did. But what I find interesting is that in evangelical, in white America evangelical, or the, uh, uh, the movement that we are a part of as a church, this Western church, we always start our gospel message off with, well, you're a sinner, you need to be saved, here's how it happens. And we have this four-point way of actually getting across that bridge, and we get there and we're like, oh, good, yay. But what I find interesting is that Jesus' message rarely ever starts with that. Jesus' message actually starts in a way that is kind of odd. It kind of sets our, our sort of formulaic understanding of things on its head. Jesus' gospel message is, come follow me. Come follow me. Come be with me. Become like me. Do what I do. And then Jesus comes with this sermon and says, this is what the kingdom of God will look like. This is Luke's account of the Sermon on the Mount, as I said before. And Jesus is telling his hearers, of the upside-down economy of God's kingdom. He says here, blessed are. In a sense, God's favor is resting upon the poor, the hungry, the grieving, and those experiencing injustice, religious injustice. Now, we have all probably in this room have experienced somewhat, uh, uh, somewhat of these conditions. Some of us may have experienced poverty in some shape or form. Some of us have probably experienced what it's like to be hungry and not have enough food in the house. Some of us, I know all of us, have experienced grief in some way, shape, or form. We know what it means to cry. We know what it means to hurt and to grieve the loss of loved ones. We know that feeling. Some of us have maybe even experienced religious persecution, even just a little bit. And God, or Jesus is telling us that God's favor rests upon those. Those are the elevated ones in God's kingdom. Not the haves, but the have-nots. Now, while you and I can probably easily say that none of those circumstances are particularly uh, worthy of, of seeking after, 
None of us really want to be poor. None of us want to be uh, in grief. None of us wants to be hungry or face persecution. None of us want those things. But God calls them blessed, not because they in themselves are a blessing, but rather that he is near to those who are experiencing them. God has called them blessed because his nearness and his promises to those in those circumstances, that he is near to those. The Psalms actually tell us that uh, God is near to the brokenhearted. God is with them in it. There is divine hope that is given to those who are not able to rescue themselves out of the conditions they find themselves in. These are the blessed, he says. On the other hand, Jesus comes after those. He says there are three woes. In a sense, there are these three laments or three threats to those who have attempted to insulate themselves against the circumstances mentioned above. He says to those of you uh, who are self-satisfying yourselves through um, uh, wealth and overconsumption and pleasure-seeking and false security rooted in admiration, those things have a time limit, he says. He says, woe to you. He says, watch out. Be careful. You who put your confidence in those things uh, rather than in God, you are not in a blessed state. You are actually in a precarious state. If you remember the movie uh, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, which is the worst of, of the four. I, well, I'll take that back. It is the second worst of the four. Um, and I know that some of you are saying amen to that. Um, there's a scene where Indiana Jones has to go across this rickety old bridge to get from the bad guys to where the good guys are. And uh, as he's going across, there are pieces of the wood that are falling away because they are rotten. In the same way, those that trust in those things alone, wealth, overconsumption, pleasure-seeking, admiration, and esteem, when you put yourself in, that, in those arms and you trust those, that's like walking across a, a rotted-out old wooden bridge. And eventually, those, the planks will give way, and you will find yourself in the very same place that those who are already in poverty and hunger and the like. I notice here that Jesus himself doesn't actually call money or health or ample food evil. Rather, he says they should not be used to insulate yourself against the inevitable. He says ultimate trust and self-salvation will be your ruin. Woe to you. Watch out. Be careful. But I want to know here in this passage, what is Jesus doing? Why is he saying these things? This makes no sense. Okay, so is it Jesus is flipping upside down the social order? Maybe. Maybe is he inciting a riot? I mean, he's calling all the, the, the people that are in the lowest places of life, he's calling them blessed. And so are the blessed people supposed to stand up and go, that's right, we're, we're the favored ones of God. We're, we're the best now, and so we're going to take over this whole thing. We're going to rise up. I think it's key if we, if we stop at that, if we stop at the woes, maybe we can surmise that. But I think if we take Jesus' sermon as a totality, we'll begin to see something a little different. What I notice is that Jesus uses these words here, but I say to you who hear. Notice this. He says, you've got the people over here who are in down circumstances. They are blessed. You've got the people over here who are self, uh, self-insulating against those things. They are not, in a sense, blessed. But he says, but to all of you who hear this message, Jesus says this one thing. He says, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. 
He's looking at the poor and the grieving and the hungry and the persecuted, and he's looking at the rich and the over uh, the the rich and the fat and the uh, the socially acceptable, and he's saying, "Don't fight one another. Love them. You who have everything, you love all the people over here who have nothing. It's your job to love them. You people who are over here who are, are in the worst circumstances, don't look up at them and go, I want to take their position through violence or force. No, he says, no, you love them. You love them. You love them. What Jesus here is saying is not a cause, wanting to put a split between humanity and divide his hearers into classed peoples of blessed and cursed, but to describe how the two halves can be one. It appears that Jesus is not advocating, like I said, for uh, uh, the blessed people to take their newfound status and lord it over the rich brethren. There's no uprising. There's no uh, insurrection here. There's no, uh, this isn't being advocated or encouraged. And also, Jesus is not telling the well-off and the liked and the full-tummy happy people to abandon their state for an ascetic monastic existence either. He's not saying, okay, all of you who have all your wealth and everything, I want you to give it all away and I want you to walk around in terrible clothing and smell bad. He's not saying that. He's not telling them to, to you know, beat their bodies and walk around like those guys in the, the Holy Grail who are, are hitting themselves with boards you know, and chanting. That's, that's not what he's telling you. But if we read verse 27, I say to you who hear, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Jesus is telling both halves to love one another to agape one another, to value each other, to see the divine image in each of us, and then to serve each other as the fuel and the glue that binds people together in his kingdom. If we notice later on in the rest of the passage, we continue to go down, which I encourage you to read. He says things like, uh, says, turn the other cheek uh, if they strike you. If someone takes your cloak, give them your tunic also. If someone begs from you, uh, give what they ask for and don't ask for it back. Um, as you wish others would do to you, do to them. The golden rule, as it says. Jesus is saying these practical ways to the have-nots. Listen, this is how you do things. You're to love the people that are socially your enemy. You're to do good for them, to pray for them, to esteem them, to hold them in high value, not to look down on them and not to look on them as if they were people that whom you want to take their position. And all you rich people over here, you people who are self-insulating, I need you to value the poor and the grieving. I need you to do for them as you would want them to do for you when you are in their circumstances. See, I think the point that Jesus is making here and the rest of his sermon, actually, is setting up the church, you and I, those of us who are following Jesus, who want to be with him, who want to become like him, and who want to do the things he does. He's setting us up to be a place where the poor and the grieving and the hungry and the persecuted can be cared for by those who have the means to do so, who have the means, have the food, have the community, and have the protection we're not meant to be a place where there's, we're all uh, healthy and well. We're always going to be a mixture of, of those who are in the worst circumstances and those that are in the best. And the idea that Jesus is setting up in his kingdom is that the most that God is blessed with stuff to handle the things that the people who don't have need is for them to give. If you look back, if you look in Acts, in Acts chapter 2, uh, you see, I believe it's Acts chapter 2, you see um, the church 
the gathered believers all doing this. Those who had means sold their possessions in order to meet the needs of those who did not have. One of the things I've noticed in this, uh, within our congregation is that when we grieve, we all gather around those who grieve. We who have joy and who are laughing and happy, we set aside that joy and we set aside that stuff and say, it's not appropriate for me right now to be all happy and jumping around and, and goofy. It's my time to grieve with those who grieve. When one of us has a financial need, when one of us has a, a need, we take and we say, it's not for me to hold on to what I have because I have plenty. It is for me to give to the person who, who needs. When somebody's hungry, or better yet, when somebody's in such grief that they are hungry and they need, Jesus is saying, go. Take, don't, don't hoard it in your giant freezer. Take it out, defrost it, cook it up, and bring it to your neighbor. Jesus is wanting the church to be a place where the poor and the grieving and the hungry and the persecuted can be cared for by those who have the means, the food, the community, and the protection. Because first of all, foremost, when Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, when he says, love your enemy, he's saying that love values perceived enemies and serves them as witness to God's favor and grace. Where politics cannot heal the divide, it is because they do not value the other. No matter what side of the aisle you're on. But the church, because of what God has valued us and sent his one and only son to die in our place. And to become uh, sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus has now given us the ability to look at the other and not see them as other but as brother. As sister. As family mother. Member. As father. As mother. Love, as defined by Jesus, is not necessarily our natural state, and yet it is a gift that he gives us through his Son, in order to, uh, empowered by the Holy Spirit, that we might give it away. Agape love is for those whom have, we have deemed as our enemies and who have deemed us as their enemies. Um, but God says love, uh, love them. The first aspect of the fruit of the Holy Spirit in Galatians says, fruit of the Holy Spirit is love, love. God expressed his love for us, like I said, in dying from the cross and rising again for our sin and then giving us his spirit in us that we might love one another. So love is not a feeling, but it is an expressed action. Notice Jesus' words later on. He says, do good, bless, pray for. It is the opposite of our normal state. We don't want to do these things. We would rather get on Twitter and blast people. We would rather just gather around the table with drinks and, and food and just lament uh, the stupidity of the other side. We would rather just say, I don't believe any of their junk because none of them have it right. But rather Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. The way to healing, the way to unity, the way to bringing peace is to love your neighbor, to love your enemy. It will disrupt those people's lives because they're expecting your vitriol, but instead you're bringing them a pot roast. It will disrupt the way they think because they think you're bringing war and you're bringing a blanket. The hungry and the poor and the grieving show concern from those who take advantage of them. Notice that. It's not just encumbered upon those who have to bless those who don't have, but it's also important for those who have not to not 
demonize those who have. Notice Jesus' words here. He says, lend and give. It means that those who have, just give it away. Don't even ask for it back. You know, if someone asks you for their impact driver and it ends up sitting in your garage for uh, a couple weeks, years, whatever it is, and you never ask for it back. It's just the way it goes. If you end up cutting off the, the, uh, uh, the power cable to a, a circular saw uh, and, you know, uh, and they don't get angry at you for it. These are real world examples. <laughs> Clearly, I should not be allowed to have electrical tools. Jesus' command is to love and not demand anything in return. That is the essence of agape. Be kind, be merciful, be generous. In general, those who are in God's kingdoms are not supposed to be jerks. We are not meant to have the annoying of God. We are meant to have the anointing of God that brings kindness and mercy and generosity and peacemaking. This is why in in Matthew's account, it says, blessed are the peacemakers. This is what we are meant to be. We are not meant to be those who widen the divide, but those who bridge it. Our demeanor is to take on Jesus' own merciful nature, become like him. Inviting in the quote-unquote sinners. Inviting in the outcasts. Inviting in all those that the world scatters to the four winds and says, you're not acceptable. We are to be the place where they come and experience value. Where they come and know that they are loved. Whether they look or act like us, they are meant to become part of us. Love is not necessarily a feeling, but an attitude of valuing another expressed in action. Love unifies the previous disparate, previously disparate people into the people of God. And Jesus' words and commands are followed that the result will be a new kind of humanity. The world will look on us and go, what are you doing? How did you do that? And at the heart of the gospel is a reunified human race that has God's love and grace at its core. So, What's our response? Listen, Jesus, I, I just spoke for 20 minutes or so. Jesus said this in three seconds. I think he makes it his point pretty clear. Love your enemy as yourself. Love your enemy. Do good to them. Bless them. Don't curse. Love one another in this church. Love every, one another outside of this church and in every circumstance you find yourself in. You might find yourself in the blessed group. What I mean is you might find yourself in poverty or hunger or grief or persecution. What God wants us to do is to lean into his love and his nearness and remind ourselves that he is near us and not far. And sometimes while the fog of circumstances can often cloud the nearness of God, he is in our midst. And as you draw near to God, be willing to extend mercy to those who might demand something from you. And rather than demonizing them as uncaring jerks, which they very well could have been, show the love of God. Give of yourself as you can. Yes, I know there's limits. I know. But if you find yourself on the other side of the coin, where you're in a season of abundance, where things are going pretty well, where you're feeling full in your stomach, you're feeling full and you have joy and you have peace and you have means don't rest on that if you whatever you have in excess and if someone needs it let's give it away let's give it away and not ask for it in return let's check in on the needs and circumstances of others who are in need 
That's the beauty of what we, what our WhatsApp group is, is talking back and forth about things. When we hear about somebody in, in crisis, let's drop everything we can and help them in any way we can. When we hear of somebody in crisis in our neighborhood, let's drop what we have and, and, and go help them. Those that, are, that have means ought to be able to serve those who do not. We have to provide for those who cannot provide for themselves because in a very cool way, that's how God cares for those in need. He uses you and I. All this right here at the very end, let me close it with this, what Jesus says. As you wish that others would do to you, do to them. I know it's fourth grade stuff, but it's profound. Your mission this week is to love your enemies and pray for them, do good to them, not wish harm on them. Let's pray. First of all, Father, we confess that we have uh, uh, not done what was necessary uh, many times. We have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. We have uh, uh, hated them at times. We have enjoyed our insulating uh, means that we have often not reached out. We have not given and lended and, and shared our lives. Oftentimes, God, we have also uh, turned the other way and we have lamented those who have more than us. And we have derided them as, as less than. Lord, forgive us of this. Lord, give us your love that we might give it away, that we might be children of, of you and that we might uh, be witnesses to a world that desperately needs to know that you care for them. In Jesus' name, amen.